Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Gavin, for the last time, I have a head cold, not the coronavirus. If you spray that Lysol at me one more time, I'm going to disinfect you where the sun doesn't shine. Ass. The following podcast contains... Profanity, food jokes, and tired comedy references. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you waited 30 years to say fucking Star Trek, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, February 28th, 2020, Flowers for John Luck Pickard edition of the show, where we talk about the gritty reboot 30 years in the making. Stay tuned. Short today, what the hell you think of podcast is brought to you by Quark's Bar, Grill, Gaming House, and Hollow Sweet Arcade. From its humble origin on the promenade of Deep Space Nine to its galaxy spanning franchise, Quark's Bar always feels like home. No matter if you're a lonely Cardassian looking for the taste of Kanar or a hungry Klingon looking for the freshest gah in the quadrant, you'll find it at Quark's. Looking for games of chance, our double wheels are loose and our dealers are tight. Thinking of high adventures or dangerous liaisons? Clark's Hollow Suites offers the finest interactive excitement. Clean, discreet, and very, very exciting. No matter where you are, you can always find a seat at Quark's Bar. Look for the holographic Morton at the end of the counter and tell him Quark sent you. Major, you wanted to see me. I don't pretend you don't know what this is about. Oh, well, maybe this will jog your memory. Engage monitor. <laughs> Oh, I love the part where my name rotates around. Tampering with the station's comm system is a class three offense. It's just a little advertisement. I didn't post one in ops. I'm sure the magistrate will take that into consideration when he calculates your fine. You! As you can see, we're very busy here. Station business. How did you do it? Do what? I ordered a glass of prune juice from the replicator in the Defiance mess. This is what it came in. If all your little advertisements aren't purged from our systems by the time I get back from the Gamma Quadrant, I will come to Quark's and believe me. I will have fun. If you've heard this show before, you may already know this. If not, welcome. Hold on to your butts. I was a nerd long before being nerdy got you laid. I find that hard to believe. Being a nerd for five decades means that I was in on the ground floor of a lot of nerdy things, and one of those things was Star Trek. Space, a final frontier. When I was a young nerdling, the captain wore a yellow shirt, over-emoted, and Ed took down his opponents with a badass double-handed shoulder chop. Ah! 
And when the movies arrived, I was warp speed into the theaters and watched them endlessly on VHS. Kirk was my captain, and I would have no captain but Kirk. But then September 1987 came, and everything changed. Space, the final frontier. Now, I admit, the last few months of 1987 were a little hectic for me, culminated in in attending shouting camp in December, also known as basic training, so I wasn't really around to watch the show that much, and I will admit that I was not 100% on board with this next generation thing. First of all, why was Gurney Halleck in command of the Enterprise? And second of all, why is there a Klingon on the bridge? What's a Klingon doing down here? My thoughts exactly. It didn't help that when I finally got the chance to watch it, Star Trek The Next Generation wasn't, uh, well, it was kind of, uh... Sucked us! Yeah. We've sort of collectively forgiven the first two seasons of The Next Generation because the rest of the series is so good, but the first season was fucking terrible, and season two two seesawed between kind of okay and outright awful. I mean, Up the Long Ladder was just a dog turd of an episode, but Measure of a Man was truly amazing. It was the first time you saw what this show could really be. Now, sooner or later, this man, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. I watched this episode, and even at 19, being nothing more than a horny nerd with delusions of grandeur, I was floored by the story and its bigger meaning. It was nothing short of amazing. From this episode, TNG began an exploration of the present through the lens of a fantasy future, doing what good sci-fi has always done. I mean, it's from this very episode that the latest incarnation of Star Trek has sprung, the much-anticipated Star Trek Picard. I've been watching the show, and man... What can I say about it? Yeah, this is why I can't have nice things. Don't get me wrong, I love the show. It's a long overdue examination of what I consider the real timeline of the show, not the nonsense of the reboots or the retconning discovery, but picking up the direct line of succession from the original series, the next generations and its movies through Deep Space Nine and Voyager. You missed one. Not that I'm aware of. This is Captain Archer of the Starship Enterprise. No, it doesn't ring any bells here. Been a long road Getting from there to here You turn that off right now, Gavin. You know our policy on this show. We neither acknowledge that, that episode, that show, and we never play that song. I'm going to stop here for a moment to give fair warning. The next few minutes of the show are really going to be extremely, uh... Nerd alert! <coughs> Nerd alert! As I delve into the underpinnings of a fictional universe, I mean, this entire episode does that, but this is going to reach a dorky pocket protector and level of nerddom. If that's something you're not interested in, you should probably come back next week when I'll be on about whiskey and politics, no doubt. But a lot of fans, and this is why I say we can't have nice things, are accusing Picard of falling victim to the gritty reboot syndrome that grips Hollywood of late, and there's an element of truth to this criticism. 
But as someone who has known and loved Star Trek for 50 years, I have to say, good riddance to that Pollyanna bullshit. I can't wait for Gene Roddenberry to tell you how wrong you are. Let's begin with the words of the great bird of the galaxy from an article he wrote for the Hollywood Reporter just before the first episode of the original series aired. Quote, why a journey into space? Because science is now learning that the infinite reaches of our universe probably teem with as much life and adventure as Earth's own oceans and continents. Our galaxy alone is so incredibly vast that the most conservative mathematical odds still add up to millions of planets almost identical to our own. Capable life, even intelligence, and strange new civilizations. Alien beings that will range from fiercely primitive to incredibly exotic intelligence which will far surpass mankind. Star Trek started with the premise that the American television audience is a lot more intelligent and perspective than the so-called experts insist. We feel you can shortchange that audience only at your peril. Thus, our people, our vessel, everything seen and heard must seem honest, real, and as totally believable as if we were watching detectives, cowboys, interns, or any of the other accepted TV entertainment, unquote. That was Gene on the Real World Television Show, But Gene's idea of the universe the show would represent is one of unabashed utopianism. It was 1966, and the idea of the world without want, of genuine equality, was an idea that no longer seemed quite so far in the realm of science fiction as it once did. After all, we were reaching for the stars, we were writing laws to redress the old grievances of race and class, and a young generation of well-educated, socially involved kids were agitating for an end to wars and the madness of mutually assured destruction. For Roddenberry, this wasn't some crazy hippie thing. This was the evolution of human society. Oh my God, it's beautiful. So he created this new television show to show people what this new world might look like if it came to pass. The next passage was written, was written on ThereforeIGeek.com by Andrew Hales in 2014. Quote, When Star Trek first premiered, there was something different about it. Although it was similar in many respects to contemporary science fiction media, it showed an idealized view of humanity. The show featured a racially mixed crew that included an Asian, a black woman, and a Russian, all working in complete harmony. This was 1966. It was both the height of the Cold War as well as the civil rights movements. In between the opening and closing credits was a world where race, sex, and all other things that make us different didn't matter. We were one big, happy human race. We even did our best to invite those alien species that we had met along our travels. Roddenberry did his best not only to present a future where everyone was equal, but he also tried to incorporate stories that addressed the issues and confronted his audience with on a nearly basis. Instead of hitting people over the head with obvious moral lessons that would have caused problems both with the viewers and the network, he instead wrapped them in a story that viewers could enjoy without feeling as though they were being bombarded by social commentary. Most people were on some level aware of the progressive attitudes the show espoused, but they were delivered in such a positive manner that it was difficult to disagree with. More often than not, aliens filled in as both the aggrieved party and the offender with the crew of the Enterprise coming to mediate. The idea that of this was not that people would immediately jump up and go fight the injustice in their communities, but that instead those stories would stick with people and get them thinking about all the potential that humanity has. Eventually, that kind of thinking has a way of changing people and driving them to action. Roddenberry was playing the long game, unquote. This is Roddenberry in his own words from one of his convention speeches. Quote, If a man is to survive, he will have learned to take a delight in the essential differences between men and between cultures. He will learn that differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, 
part of life's un, uh, exciting variety, not something to fear, unquote. The glory of creation is in its infinite diversity. Infinite diversity and infinite con- combinations. Cool old Sean in Vulcan, the basis for Vulcan philosophy, was also the core of genes. Unfortunately for the writers of Star Trek, that philosophy did not apply to the writer's room of Star Trek. Gene had many rules for writing Trek, but the prime directive of his writer room was that characters, main characters, cannot be in conflict with each other for any prolonged period of time. Conflict comes from external pressures on humanity. Human beings have evolved past petty cruelty, prejudice, greed, suspicion, racism, and hate. Not so impossible. No, just uh, highly improbable. Now, maybe in 1966, this didn't pose so much of a problem for the writers. Deep drama and nuanced character portrayals were not exactly the meat and potatoes of television in a year where the top five shows in order were Bonanza, The Red Skelton Hour, The Andy Griffith Show, and The Lucy Show. Go look for dramatic tension in Andy Griffin. I'm going to crack the Ray Hollister case. Huh? I'm going to find out where that still is once and for all. How? You see, Andy, when you was sheriff, you approached the Rafe Hollister case with your usual Cracker Barrel police methods. Now that I'm sheriff, I'm going to use some highly scientific police techniques, and I'm going to wrap up the Rafe Hollister case. So the relationships between the crew of the Enterprise could be simplistic. I'm not saying they were bad. There were genuine tensions between them, like McCoy and his rather prejudiced views of Spock's biology. You green-blooded inhuman. As for the movies, the rules of the cinema are completely different than television. You have a finite amount of time for character and plot to coexist and be understood by the audience. And before the era of infinite sequels, you had to expect this movie to be your last. Maybe you got to search for Spock, but you have to write this movie like Spock is dead forever. It wasn't until the next generation, however, that on television, the rules became a real problem. So yeah, the rules existed in the original series but before this was before the cancellation and the fandom and the conventions. In a write-up on io9 by uh, Charlie Jane Anders about William Shanter's chaos on the bridge, Anders put it rather pointedly, quote, The picture that emerges is a man who is angry and bitter after years in the wilderness following the cancellation of the original Star Trek in 1969. Roddenberry, according to all Shatner sources, had also developed a huge ego after years of going to conventions and college campuses and speaking to huge, adoring throngs. And the great bird of the galaxy had started to believe his own hype regarding his status as a great visionary who pointed the way towards the utopian future for the human race. And once Roddenberry was running Star Trek, he had firm ideas on how everything should run, and a lot of them were dictated by his new belief in his own status as a humanist visionary who saw the vision, who saw the future of the human race as a kind of secular heaven where nobody ever had any conflict or disagreements of any kind. In one telling bit, Rick Berman, an exec who later became, an exec who later became the show's producer, said Roddenberry used to talk about being friends with L. Ron Hubbard, and Roddenberry would boast that he too could have started a religion if he'd wanted, unquote. By the time TNG really started to take off, Gene was an albatross around the neck of the show. If you tell a writer that the characters can't have conflict between them, you're just cutting his legs off. Some writers chafed 
against Gene's vision of a better future where there was no conflict. The essence of, of drama is conflict. There was no evil. There's no money anymore. There was no jealousy. There's no fighting anymore. No separate individual goals or ideas. We negotiate. No tension. What? His management style, his choice of a new head writer, his fights with the studio, his head writer's fights with the actors, a long writer strike resulting in a late start on season two, and Gene's rapidly declining health all contributed to Chaotic's second season. And to be honest, you can see which episodes Gene had a hand in and which ones he did not. By season three, Rick Berman was running the show, and Gene died during the production of the fourth season. I revere Roddenberry for his contribution to television, science fiction, Hell to my life. But his idiotic idea of utopia held Star Trek back in its renewal. Deep Space Nine changed all of that. And look, I'm not going to spend the next 20 minutes raving about why Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek, but trust me, pod friends, I could. Of that I have no doubt. Let's just say free of the shackles of utopianism and being fortunate enough to come about at the beginning of an era of great television, Deep Space Nine was free to explore the darker elements of the Federation, Starfleet, and the people who lived in this far future world and come to find out... They're just like us, really. Flawed, filled with doubts, regrets, and longing. Dr. McCoy might have been able to regrow a kidney with a pill. But it turns out... You can't replicate a broken heart. That's a touching story. I think where Deep Space Nine diverges off from most from the previous treks was in its storyline about a secretive television search at Section 30, Service Section 31 that went about in the shadows and did things the Federation would never do in the light of day. Assassinations, extortion, frame job, smuggling, peddling, smutty, hollow programs. And for the first time, you saw Starfleet as something human. Because we all know that humanity at our very core is extremely dangerous. When humans feel threatened, we will do anything, morals be damned, to have at least the illusion of security. All of which brings us to Star Trek Picard. Oh, finally. Without digging too deeply into the plot and the backstory, it shows Jean-Luc Picard, the high-minded warrior for all that was good and the Federation, in the midst of a good old-fashioned sulk when the Federation betrays the principles it espouses and breaks promises to aid an old enemy, not quite frenemy in need. Picard pulls a blood so and tells Starfleet that if it won't live up to its ideas and do the right thing, then he will just take his little ships and go home. And instead of immediately recognizing the error of their way, Starfleet was all like, Fine, then go. I'm gone. Go then. I am. Go. I'm gone. Go then. I am. And this is why people are upset, because Starfleet isn't supposed to be like that. Indeed, it's why Picard quit, because Starfleet isn't supposed to be like that. But come on, look at what has happened that led up to the moment the Federation turned their backs on its promises and ideas. The Borg invasion killed 11,000 Starfleet personnel and destroyed 250 ships. A few years later, while still reeling from this, the Federation is locked in a war with the Dominion, which can more or less infiltrate the ranks at will. A war that will cost 91 million lives for the Federation. This is on top of long-running Cold Wars with the Romulans and sporadic shooting wars with the Cardassians. And the cherry on top is the constant threat of unknown species and incursions along a massive frontier. Life in the United Federation of Planets is anything but uneventful, 
And after all of this, a sudden and unexpected unrising, uprising and attack on one of its most valuable shipyards in the Federation puts into motion the event of Picard, the events of Picard. But is there really wonder, any wonder that Starfleet might be a little hesitant to expend itself, risking assets it might need for self-preservation to help a people that were at best the enemy of the enemy a few years before? This is the most true-to-reality story I've ever seen on Star Trek, and my only complaint with the show is how weird it is to hear people say fuck on Star Trek. Good science fiction tells us stories about the times we live in now, about the conditions at the time it was created. Early Trek could get away with showing a world where color, ethnicity, and religion didn't matter, where the future of humanity was uplifted by new technologies and carrying us towards a bright future. The next generation was post-Roddenberry to address the fears of rising technology and how it impacted humanity vis-a-vis the Borg. Picard shows us the unvarnished world where technology has, quote, eliminated need, unquote, on the surface, unified peoples across borders and cultures and placed unlimited information at your fingertips and what happens when we lose control over that technology that we created to hopefully improve our lives. You can't measure Picard against the next generation anymore. You can judge CSI Greenpoint, Wisconsin, wherever the fuck they're off to these days against Dragnet. It's written in a different time, shit, in a different world and for a different audience. People who are complaining Picard betrays the values of Star Trek fail to understand that Star Trek isn't real. It's a creation of people living through a moment in history. And like with any other work of fiction, you are not required to watch it. It does not erase what came before. You can watch Pike get around, get ground on by an Orion slave girl or Picard get Jamaha Roan on Risa or what I assume will end up being a hollow orgy with five different versions of Captain Rios on the La Serena. I have got to get me some of this action. So if you don't like it, you've got options. It's the equivalent of George Carlin's two knobs on the radio. One of them turns the radio off and the other one changes the station. Unfortunately, the world, the actual world we live in today, lacks either two knobs or any real option to turn it off. You see, the mirror universe that Picard is holding it up to is not the United Federation of Planets, but a rather smaller, less noble, and infinitely more local nation. It's showing us, we are the ones in the goatee, and it's forcing us to be the ones to ask. Are we the baddies? It's us who have allowed our technology to turn against us and break the always fragile threads that bound us together as a nation. We've never been Reagan shining on a hill. We're more like the dingy village by the ditch with delusions of grandeur. But you know, we tried to be a little better or just a little more just, a little more equal, a little more like the values espoused in our founding documents. We've always been too quick to turn our backs on those we promised to help, too slow to promise help in the first place, and too stingy with the help we give. But when push comes to shove, we did help. We went all in with our lives and money to try and right the wrong. And after two decades of needless wars and economic crash engineered by the greediest among us and leaving them unpunished to find a new way to crash it again and a slow, unequal recovery where it looks like everyone is better until you look too closely and find people working two and three jobs just to keep a roof over their head and food on the table. We chide dictators and strongmen in one nation and flood rivers of cash and military aid in another. We crafted laws to redress centuries of slavery and Jim Crow, 
and then turned around and gutted them as soon as some nominal progress was made because someone thought electing a black man president meant racism was over. We squandered the promises of the internet truly to truly unite people for a system that gives away everything but our toenail clippings to some silicon zombie in a hoodie. In exchange, he turned our parents and a good chunk of the rest of our family into drooling MAGA chuds, spitting racist memes like they was a 1930 tar baby cartoon spitting tobacco juice. So we also we could garner the hearts and stars on a meme we shared about a dog failing service dog school. Also, by the way, follow the show on Twitter, the hell underscore podcast. It's amazing. And then to top it all off, we surrender competency, decency, ability, common sense, and basic humanity to a blundering reality show night terror come to life to haunt our waking screams. If Picard's Federation shows how to how the fall, far the Federation has fallen from its lofty ideals into a small, petty, and xenophobic place hiding behind its former glory and conspiring to preserve what little influence it has left with dubious characters and unknown motives in our mirror universe, the real universe shows a nation that hasn't so much tumbled from a great height as tripped over its own untied shoelaces. Is there a Picard out there with a plucky group of heroes that will save us from ourselves and the bad guys? Is there hope for a happy ending, for a restoration or rather an elevation to the kind of society the great bird of the galaxy and a chubby ginger kid playing with a cardboard cutout phaser on a first play- playground could find hope for the future in? Well, We've all been watching things play out this election cycle, barring getting a decent script supervisor in here for some massive rewrites before see the last season. The answer... The answer, sadly, is not yes. That is it for our show this week. I should probably apologize for the nerd fest. I seem to have went headfirst into the shallow end of the pool, but... And then again, I've got an emergency medical hologram on standby. If that happens, that's actually just Gavin with a cold compress and a fresh glass of whiskey, but it usually fixes everything up. Speaking of a cold compress, rate and review this wherever you get your pods so other people will know where it hurts when they hear the show and can do something about it. Follow the show on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast with the show name on Facebook for many, many more slights and insult about Star Trek Enterprise because, man, I hated that show. Pop over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast, and put a slip of Latin in on our Dabo tables for luck. Hit up whatthehellpodcast.com for my, my latest hollow program, Dixon Hill meets the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. It's a Star Trek Hitchhiker's Guide slash fic mashup. It's very seedy. So for me, Dave flunked out of Starfleet Academy Bledsoe, producer couldn't get into the Vulcan of Science Academy Gavin and all the fictional Ferengi on the show. We want to say when it comes to a fresh drink and a little Jamaharon, we will always say, Just make it so. We'll see you all next week. Talk it out over a cup of joe and you can look deep into my eyes like I was a supermodel. Uh-huh.
I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.